You're listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. This is the first program of a new series that's airing on KUNM Public Radio in Albuquerque each Wednesday morning. And a few days ago, I put out an email to listeners and friends that I was going to be producing this new show, and that the first show was with planetary geologist Nina Lanza talking about Mars. And I got back lots of really nice supportive emails, but one gentleman whom I've known for many years, a good guy, said, you've got to be kidding. Why study Mars when there's so many pressing problems on Earth? And I thought, yeah, reasonable people can probably agree that there are problems on Earth that are more important to solve than the composition of rocks on Mars. But you could also make a similar argument about the arts and all kinds of other things. And I thought about it for quite a bit, and I have to say, I do care about Mars, and I'm glad there's a space program, and I'm glad there are a lot of people who care about Mars and space. And one of the people who cares most is Nina Lanza, whom we're about to talk to. As you will hear, she's been obsessed with space since she was a little school child, and she's become not only an excellent scientist, but also a really good science communicator. So let's go to our conversation with Nina Lanza, staff scientist in the Space and Remote Sensing Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory, where she's a member of the ChemCam instrument team for the Curiosity Mars rover. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thanks. Great to be here. Good to have you. Now, you have been studying Mars for many years. You are a geologist. You study not only Mars, but all kinds of rocks from space, including meteorites. How is that kind of geology different, and how is it similar to geology that terrestrial geologists do? Sure. Great question. So, of course, you know, rocks are rocks, so wherever they are, we can study them. But it's really how... How do we study them and what tools can we use? The hard thing about rocks on Mars is that they're really far away. (laughs) So it's hard for me to do all the things I might normally do with a rock on Earth, right? So we had to send a rover there and the rover has to do a lot of our work for us. Um, So the rover is our eyes and takes a look at these rocks. Um, And the rover is also our instruments. Um, So we can do chemistry experiments. Um, We can do, uh, we can look at all, we can look at mineralogy. We can look at a lot of different things about these rocks, but we can't necessarily do what a normal geologist would do. So what we would do on Earth, we would say, okay, let's go out. Let's walk in the field. Let's walk up and down this section. We take a look at what rocks are around us. Um, We might hit a few rocks with a hammer, break them in half, see what's what's in them. You know, we might lick them. Um, This is a very classic geology technique. Um, Really? Absolutely. You You lick rocks. Yeah, you can totally lick rocks and find out a lot about them. So there's no toxic rocks out there. I mean, there probably are toxic rocks. It'll be fine. It's a little (laughs) rock dust. Uh, yeah, but so so we can't do that ourselves on Mars. So to do geology on Mars, we have to ask our rover to do those those things for us. And unfortunately, the rover rover is amazing, right? But the rover can't move as fast as I can, and the rover can't climb everything that I can. So we have to be very clever in asking for the right pictures and the right analyses from our rover to be able to do geology as we would on Earth. So the rover is this little thing, it's kind of like a little bitty car. Um, kind not of even, a big car, Not actually. even that little bitty car, <laughs> right. It's a me- medium-sized car uh, that drives very, very slowly across the surface of Mars. And, I mean, that thing had to be sent from Earth, parachuted down to the surface, and then controlled, I think, through radio. Is that right? That's right. So we have a, a number of different wavelengths that we use, but essentially it's radio, and we actually relay our signal through uh, a series of radio telescopes on the Earth, 
and then also through two orbiting spacecraft around Mars. You know, to be able to talk to uh, our rover directly, um, we would have to have line of sight from Earth, right? And so uh, that doesn't happen very frequently. It does, but not all the time. So it's much easier for us. Um, so when we come up with a signal, we go through the deep space network. So depending on where, where Mars is in relation to Earth, then a, a different uh, telescope will send that out. And then that, will be, that signal will be uh, received by one of our two orbiting spacecraft. And then once that orbiting spacecraft goes across the sky above the rover, then it will beam it down to the rover. And then, then if the rover communicates with us, it's in reverse and does the same thing. So we can actually communicate much more frequently with the rover than we might otherwise um, be able to because we have this awesome network of communication. So the rover, among other things, zaps rocks. And I know this because one of your colleagues and probably you have a bumper sticker that said, my other vehicle zaps rocks on Mars. What is that zapping? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I totally just put that on my new car, by the way. I was so excited. So our, our instrument um, is called ChemCam, right? And it's actually short for two uh, different words that indicate our two instruments. So it's chemistry and camera. And so the chemistry part is the zapping laser part. So it's a laser um, that we focus on a target um, it can be up to seven meters away. So that's about 23 feet away. So it can be very far away from the rover. And it's a very small spot size. It's smaller than half a millimeter, right? But it's so hot in that one little half millimeter that we can actually vaporize rock. So that's zapping some material. And so the rock is vaporized. And so as uh, that plasma is cooled, it starts to emit different colors of light that are characteristic of the elements in there. So we can actually collect that light back on the rover and see what the rock is made out of. And then we have this camera that gives us the geologic context. We have a picture of where we shot with that laser. It's a very small scale picture. So we can actually say, oh, do we shoot this little white grain, this little dark grain? You know, what did we actually shoot and see the, the differences in composition as it relates to the actual rock? Now, are there any kinds of rock on Mars that you found with the ChemCam that we don't have here on Earth? So I would say no overall. So there are some types of rocks that are unusual. We don't really see them on Earth, but they're not impossible. For example, the, the sandstones on Mars are primarily made up of basaltic sediments. Um, so that's, you know, basalt is that you know, black lava rock we see all over New Mexico. Um, on Earth, this doesn't really form this way because it, all those minerals are so water soluble. We have a lot of water on Earth. So we typically don't make a sandstone, which is just little pieces of basalt all glued together or you know, little rocks glued together. We don't make that out of basalt. On Earth, most sandstones are made out of quartz and they're sort of cemented together with, with you know, silica. So when you see a typical sandstone on Earth, it's actually a very different composition. So they're made in the same way, a bunch of sediments getting glued together, but they're compositionally different. And so I say no, though, because even though this is an unusual rock type on Earth, you know, a basaltic sandstone could certainly form on Earth if you had the right conditions. So you need some water, but not too much water, right? You need a source of basaltic sediments. All of those things exist on Earth. So so they could, it could exist on on earth we just it's just unusual and we don't really see it i've actually been looking for papers to find uh, a source of basaltic sandstones somewhere on earth because i'd love to shoot those in the lab um, and i haven't yet but i'm not giving up because the earth is a pretty big planet <laughs> bigger than mars it is in fact approximately 50 percent bigger than mars <laughs> and yet there's so much of mars that we don't no. I mean, well, what do we know? Do we have a globe? Like, okay, a third grader goes to school and there's a globe. 
Are there globes of Mars? Like how much of... Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we actually have a lovely globe of Mars um, in my office. Um, and so it just shows, um, you can look at a lot of different things, right? But we look at topography. So sort of looking at the elevation and it uh, shows sort of you know where craters are, where depressions are, and some major features are labeled. Um, so you could look at the Earth like that. A lot of globes of Earth um, show, you know, just the land masses without clouds, you know, right? You sort of see the surfaces, but you can also get a topography globe of Earth as well. So it depends what you want to look at. And the pieces of that globe that the Mars rover that the ChemCam has looked at, do we know those in more detail? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we landed the Curiosity rover in a crater called Gale. Um, that's about, it's near the equator, but it's about minus three degrees. So that's three degrees south latitude. So it's kind of in the tropics. <laughs> Warm and balmy for Mars. That's right. And so we could see that it's actually a pretty big crater. It's about 150 kilometers in diameter. So that's about the distance between Los Alamos and Albuquerque. So it's pretty big. Um, and it's got this big central mound of material in the center. And we don't think that that mound is just from, you know, a big impact, right? It's actually sediments. It's a mountain made of sediments. And it's huge. It's like the size of Kilimanjaro, which is the tallest mountain in Africa. It's over 19,000 feet tall. So it's enormous. So we thought we'd go there just because it looked like that would be a place where we would find evidence of water. A lot of sediments are emplaced by water and wind. So we saw this mountain. Um, we saw some stream bed looking things um, we saw some alluvial fans some fans so this was an area where we thought you know this would be a good place to look for water alluvial fans what does that mean oh i'm so sorry that's a little bit of jargon there um so we have those in new mexico so that's those are if you can imagine when stuff so you have a, a hill slope covered in un unconsolidated materials like rocks and soils and stuff like that all that stuff wants to fall down right and it's uh, aided in that process by water so alluvial fans mean that sort of it's mostly it's mostly dry, but water can help to push this material down and it makes this fan shape. Um, you can see this really clearly, actually, in satellite images of Death Valley um, because there's just no vegetation to cover up these fans and, and you know, no vegetation really holding that material on the on the slope. So you just end up seeing what looks like a channel coming down a slope and then this wide fan of material um, at the base. And in order to get that fan... You basically need water. I mean, this is a, a physical phenomenon caused by water, which means if you have them on Mars, there was water, there is water. What does it mean? Well, when you see those fans, I mean, it's not a lot of water, right? Um, but taken with all the other evidence that we have of water on Mars, I mean, it's clear to me, I think, that that's exactly what happened, right? Um, and, of course, the Earth is a really good laboratory for us, right? It's our best laboratory. It's a planet we can study over and over um, with many different techniques. And so this is how these forms form on Earth. It's a reasonable analogy to make on Mars. Let's talk about what you've discovered. Now, the Curiosity rover is one of several generations of Mars rovers. And so over the years that these rovers have been landing on Mars, all kinds of discoveries have been made. Walk us through that. Oh, sure. So, yeah, Curiosity is just one of a line of rovers. So our first rover ever was actually part of the Pathfinder mission. It's a little Sojourner rover. It was like the size of a Tonka truck. And it was... Um, this was like a little bitty toy truck? Yeah, I'd say... Um, you know, if you, maybe it was like maybe a foot long or something like that. It was adorable. It had six little wheels and it had scientific instruments on it. Um, it was launched, it was landed, I believe, on July 4th, 1996. Um, 
and it was still tethered to the its little lander so it's, it had a landing part and then this little Tonka truck rolled off this ramp and just could drive around the rover analyzing things and so this was a small rover uh, but it was a rover nonetheless and it was um, a test of our ability to do that and we're like great that worked out really well um, so then the next rovers that we sent um, were the Spirit and Opportunity rovers in 2004 because they were launched in 2003 I got there in January of 2004 and these were twin rovers that were much larger I'd say they were like the size of a golf cart <laughs> um, the coolest golf cart ever and so they were sent to two different places on the surface of Mars that were very far apart pretty much on the opposite sides of the planet one, to, one went to a place called Gusev Crater and the other went to a place called Meridiani Planum um, and so they were only supposed to last for about 90 days that was in 2004 and Opportunity is still going. It's an amazing rover, right? It's still learning things today about the Martian environment. So those are both there now. Spirit, unfortunately, didn't make it through the last winter, um, but had many years of incredible um, data collection. Now, they have winter in Mars? Oh, yes, absolutely. As you may be aware, the seasons on Earth are due to the tilt, the axial tilt of the Earth, right? So that's about 24 degrees, right? So Mars also has a tilt of its axis. Um, so as it turn, as it moves around the sun, its year is longer. It's about twice as long as an Earth year, but it still has seasons because it has that axial tilt. About the same amount as and we it's have. Approximately the same, and that's coincidental. Yeah. Um, but of a, a sort of a fun coincidence. Um, but of course, winter is going to be much longer, and summer is also going to be longer, just because it has a wider orbit than Earth. And is it also a lot colder? I mean, it's further from the sun. That's right. Yeah. So it's further, so we get a little bit less sunlight. Right. And it also has a much thinner atmosphere. So atmosphere really helps keep the Earth uh, at a reasonable temperature so we don't get too hot and we don't get too cold. So our atmosphere is really important for this reason. We should all be very grateful we have one. Mars's atmosphere is about six millibar pressure. So that's six one-thousandths of what Earth's is at sea level. So it's quite small. So it, they have much bigger temperature swings from day to night and also from season to season. So let's again, talk about some of the discoveries that have been made. I mean, you haven't found little creatures walking around. No, no creatures, sadly. Still looking. Um, but we have discovered a lot about Mars that we didn't know. Um, so one of the things we really wanted to know is if Gale Crater was habitable. So habitable means potential, potentially some, it would be an environment in which life as we could understand it here could exist. So, so not a place that necessarily is inhabited, but a place that could support life as we understand it on Earth. And we found that there, this, the answer is a resounding yes. Um, and I think it's not just Gale Crater, it really is many environments on Mars. We found that in Gale Crater, there was this long-term uh, lake of liquid water that was a really pretty neutral pH, right? So it's not too acidic, not too basic. Um, I mean, it's still there? The lake is there? The lake is not there anymore. Ah. It was there. We can see it in the rock record, right? So we see um, what are called mudstones, right? These are really fine-grained sedimentary rocks. And they are emplaced by by lakes, essentially. This looks like a very classic uh, sequence of sediments that you would see on Earth in a lake. And so, again, so the lake is gone now, but we know it was there. And we know it was there for a really long time because we have many hundreds of meters of, of section that shows that over, you know, thousands, if not millions of years, that these sediments were being built up by this lake. So the lake means that there could theoretically be life. So the lake 
now makes it more likely. So this is more of a habitable environment. If this lake environment, as we understand it on Mars, you know, if it existed on Earth, it would have been inhabited, no question. Now the question is, you know, um, on Mars, was it inhabited or not? And that's a hard question to answer, especially with our instrument payloads. But we know for certain that there were environments on Mars that were habitable. And that is a really important question to answer because you can't look for life before you know if life could even exist there, right? So we now know that life could exist on Mars. Did it exist on Mars? Does it exist on Mars? Those are unanswered questions. Are there other conditions besides water that are necessary for life? Absolutely. I mean, so water itself implies more than just, you know, that, that's, a, that's a thing that requires a certain temperature range and a certain pressure range, right? So right there, that tells you if you have liquid water, you have a very particular temperature pressure regime. But you also need the building blocks of life, right? So um, we like to, there's an acronym that scientists use. It's called CHINOPS, right? So that stands for carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. So these elements, chinops, is a great way to remember it, are considered the building blocks of organic chemistry and therefore life. So we need to know that all of those, those elements existed in, um, on Mars in enough abundances and the right kind of uh, proportions to support life. And the answer is yes, we have found all of those things on Mars. And in fact, we found organic molecules even, so that we've discovered methane, which is carbon and hydrogen. So that's, a, that's something that is not only that life can use to live, but is also produced by life. Not necessarily, right? It can also be produced abiologically. But those things are there on Mars. So we, we feel very confident that the building blocks of life were also in this lake. That doesn't mean that there was life using them, but that just says that opens that possibility. Now, what is the ground like? I mean, when you see pictures, it looks like the most arid parts of the Southwest in a really dry year. There's actually a website called Mars or New Mexico, which like compares <laughs> pictures of Mars versus New Mexico. And I'm kind of cheating because I know what all the pictures of Mars look like. <laughs> but it's actually remarkably similar, right? Um, the only difference is, is there's no blades of grass in the Mars images. It is very, very arid. It, you know, it would be comparable to the most arid deserts on Earth. So that would be like in Antarctica. Now, is there soil? I mean, soil seems to be something that is fundamentally organic and full of organic That's right. Matter. In fact, the, the technical definition of a soil includes an organic component. Yeah. So on Mars, we talk about soils, but that's more informal. Really, we're talking about regolith. Regolith is like crushed up rocks that don't have necessarily an organic component. So when we talk about Martian soils, that's really what we're talking about is regolith because there really isn't the same kind of incredible organic content in Martian uh, soils as there are, of course, in, on Earth. We have seen that there are, in fact, some organic materials, you know, both in the rocks and in the soils. Um, but, you know, on the surface, it's more like if you would imagine what a desert, you know, sort of this blowing, unconsolidated fine-grained sand, you know, rocks that are very ventifacted, which means sculpted by the wind. So they're very sharp. And sometimes they can be a little shiny because of that. And then these beautiful layered rocks that are outcropping in different places. Uh, we've been driving through a place called Murray Buttes. And so if you can imagine, there are these beautiful sedimentary buttes. It really looks like a lot like the southwestern United States. The only thing that's different, of course, is the sky, instead of being a lovely blue, with fluffy white clouds, it's kind of a salmon pink without very many clouds at all. And it's a little bit more dusty, I, I think. Now, if there ever was life on Mars, or indeed if there is life on Mars, 
are we talking about plants? Are we talking about single cells? Like, what do you imagine? I think, right. So it's hard to know, right? We have seen no evidence of life on Mars thus far. And so that tells us something really important. First of all, there's probably no macroscopic life. So, you know, people are kind of macroscopic, trees. Meaning you can see that. Yeah, right. At the scale of a human, we don't see, there's nothing that's running around that's, you know, multicellular and large scale like that. We haven't, and we haven't seen any evidence, you know, for past life. We see on Earth, right, we see a lot of like a dinosaur bone or something like that, right, that tells us there was life that was very large in the past. In terms of microbes, we have no evidence that there are microbes, but there could be, right? Even in the most arid environments on Earth, the most inhospitable places, life finds a way. So life, as we currently understand it, could exist on Mars, um, and we just have to know how to find it. And that's hard to do with our rover instruments. Right. Because we don't, we can't bring all of our wet chemistry laboratory instruments, you know, so we call it, Curiosity is actually a nickname. The full rover name is the Mars Science Laboratory because it's like sending a tiny laboratory, but it's a limited laboratory, right? It's an incredible tool, but we can't do every experiment. And so um, this instrument or this, this rover payload was not sort of optimized to find microbial life. It was more optimized to find habitability, right? So looking for those building blocks of life and the requirements of life. The next rover that's going to be going uh, in 2020, right now the name is Mars 2020, so a full name to be determined. Um, that rover's mission is to find biosignatures. So it has a different payload on it that might help us better explore that question. You know, are there actual signatures of life that we can detect on Mars? Now, do we have any rocks from Mars? I mean, I know these rovers are kind of a one-way thing. They go there, they don't come back, they send signals back. But do we have any actual material from Mars? Yeah, so we've never done a sample return from Mars. So that's kind of a bummer. But we're pretty lucky because pieces of Mars actually come to Earth in the form of meteorites. And think there are about 134, that number is changing every day, but there's about 134 identified rocks, uh, meteorites that are from Mars. How do they leave Mars and come here? Yeah, so yeah, how, how does that even happen, right? So if you look at the surface of Mars, you can see it's very cratered, right? So there have been a huge impacts. And some of those impacts are so large, they were able to launch rocks off of, off of Mars and into an orbit, probably around the sun. And then that orbit eventually intersected with that of Earth, and it fell onto Earth. And it waited for some amount of time, um, in some cases, probably millions of years, until somebody found it. And then it might have waited, in fact, even longer for us to be able to identify that it was from Mars. In fact, we didn't identify any meteorites as Martian until I believe it was the mid-90s. Can you identify the age of the rocks? You can. You can. But you only know, essentially, you don't, you know when it was made, essentially, on Mars or when it was sort of launched off of Mars. You can't know how long it's been waiting, you know, how long, how long it's been on Earth. Um, you can just know how old that rock is. And some of those rocks are not as old as you might imagine, right? There's been some really big impacts. And when I say not as old as you might imagine, I'm still talking in the billions of years, right? You know, but for, a, for you know, in, in terms of, you know, age, that's actually pretty reasonable. If you only have a one billion year old rock, I mean, that's pretty late in the history of Mars. If one of those rocks had some tiny microorganisms on it, could they have survived the journey? You know, never say never, right? Life finds a way. There are microbes on Earth that love living inside nuclear reactors. I mean, that's nuts, right? But <laughs> they do it, and they do a great job of it, you know? There are microbes that are, like, growing on the outside of the International Space Station. Like, what? I mean, amazing, incredible. 
So, you know, even if we don't understand how that's possible, I think we can't say that it couldn't happen. It would take a lot, right? So you need to have, you need something that, you know, could withstand an enormous impact that could, you know, that's a, that's a very um, catastrophic event, right? A lot of pressure, a lot of heat. Then it's got to go to space. It's really cold there, high radiation. Who knows how long it was in space, you know? And then it's got to survive, like, coming in to the Earth, being heated up again. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that have to happen. But then if it landed... Those, yeah, I mean, those could be our ancestors. I mean, sure, right? So that's the idea of panspermia, right? That maybe we came from somewhere else and landed here. It's not impossible. The way we test this hypothesis is finding life somewhere else and then saying, does it look anything like us or is it completely different? So that's a really, I think that's a really important reason that we continue looking in a serious and scientific way for where life could exist elsewhere. Because seeing different life than Earth life is going to help us understand the nature of life so much better. You know, we always forget that like we share 50% of our DNA with like a banana, right? We're all really, you know, all earth life is incredibly similar, right? So it really tells us, you know, probably we have a, you know, a single origin, right? That that's a really good evidence for that because we're not totally different, you know, even though we don't feel like a banana, like we're really similar to one. So what would Martian life be like? You know, if it looked exactly like Earth life, wow, right? That's incredibly profound. Um, but that being said, that's why we have to be so careful not to bring life to Mars and then discover it. Right, right, right. So right. we have a whole, um, it's a, we have a program called Planetary Protection where we have to make sure that we can prevent that from happening, right? We don't want to seed life on Mars and then find life on Mars because that is going to just, that's going to be very confusing, obviously. So you make sure that the rover that you send hasn't been sneezed on and <laughs> covered we, with soil and to the best of our abilities right yeah so actually there are microbes that live in clean rooms specifically you know they they always do swabs at the jet propulsion laboratory where these rovers are assembled to see what's living in there and wow a lot of stuff lives in there which is crazy because like what is it even eating what is it doing you know but they make a very careful inventory so that they know, you know, what could possibly be contaminating these things. And then we try to actually sterilize the rover and all of its instruments to the best of our abilities. Now, we can't, we can't sterilize it perfectly, right? You're not going to dip this whole rover into like an alcohol bath. You're not going to bake it to really high temperatures. It would destroy the instruments, right? So we have to be careful. So we sterilize to the, our, the best of our ability. But then we also don't go to places where we think, you know, we might be able to, you know, seed life. So that means we don't, if we saw like liquid water on the surface, we could not approach it, not with this rover. And that's because we just don't want to risk, you know, the very small but non-zero chance that, you know, a microbe from Earth is still alive on the rover and is like, that looks like a great new home for me. Now, let's talk for a moment about human missions to Mars. You, I think, have wanted for a long time to actually be perhaps the first person on Mars or to be one of, you know, to, to go there. Or a person on Mars. I'll be yeah. first. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, our rovers are incredible. There really are. But I'm a much better geologist than our rover, even, even our incredible rovers, uh, Curiosity. So, you know, there is a part of me that I would just, I would love to go on like just one afternoon hike, you know, I could learn so much about Mars just from being there. And of course, Mars feels very familiar to me. And it, I mean, it probably feel, feels familiar to everybody in New Mexico, right? You see these pictures. I mean, it is really a very familiar landscape. And of course, I spent, you know, the last 10 years of my life looking at these images. So I feel like Mars is a place that is like sort of a second home. 
so I would really, I would love the opportunity to go and actually, you know, see for myself and not just through the eyes of my rover, you know, what does this planet look like? How far away do you think we are from a manned mission to Mars or a womaned mission to Mars? Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say, so I prefer crude, um, as in with a crew or human mission, only because, you it's know. crude. Yeah, like... I know, I know. But then we, we have a crew, right? And that crew can have men and women. So, you know, of course. I don't know how far away we are, only because I think we have everything we need. You know, we, we can do this. But it just takes money and time and the will. So if we want to do this, we can. I don't know if we want to. And I say we sort of as a nation and as a world, right? That's a decision we have to make. Of course, I think it's totally worth it, but it's not just up to me, you know? Um, so I hope that we can convince our fellow citizens that this is really incredibly worthwhile. I mean, I guess I would point to even even just the, you know, if basic science is not your your jam, you know, think of the incredible technological spinoffs that came from the Apollo program. You know, there's so many things that we have and take for granted that we didn't even realize that we used to live without and this is all because of the space program. I mean, we all have cameras in our in our phones, right, that talk to satellites. I mean, all those things, those didn't that wouldn't exist without the space program. So who knows? what benefits to our lives we could get by undertaking this grand endeavor, even beyond just the incredible science. And the science, of course, will help us understand our own planet better. You know, Mars and Earth started out really similarly. They're very close to each other in the solar system. They're made of sort of the same basic building blocks. Why is Earth so different from Mars? You know, do we have a future that is similar to Mars? Why or why not? You know, so this, because we live on a planet, the study of planets is really useful. Now, I know this is just me being sci-fi. <laughs> we love sci-fi. <laughs> but did the Martians two billion years ago destroy their own planet? You know, I, I, I don't know. If they did, I mean, they did a really thorough job, right? Because there is no trace of them. <laughs> right. You know, I would, I, I would think that if they had sort of a civilization, if they had modified their environment on Mars, like we've modified our terrestrial environment, there's no way they could have erased all the traces of their civilization and the infrastructure. So I would say probably not. Probably what happened to Mars is a natural phenomenon. But, you know... I guess I, I have no idea, right? Like we, we need to continue, like maybe there's evidence that we haven't seen yet. Though my intuition says, you know, whatever, if there were Martians and there aren't now, probably they just got really unlucky. You know, I wonder, you know, life is incredibly tenacious, but I wonder since we haven't seen any evidence for life anywhere else, you know, maybe it's also really hard to maintain. So we don't, that's, a, that's a, again, an open question. Does Mars have a molten core the way we do? So it doesn't now, as far as we can tell. Um, and that's probably because the planet is so much smaller. It just cooled faster. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that um, earlier in its history that it had not only a molten core, but that it was a dynamo, like, you know, so it's sort of rotating at a slightly different rate than the rest of the planet, just like the one on Earth, right? And that's why we have a magnetic field. So there's some evidence to suggest that, there, that Mars had a dynamo at one point in time. But that was a long time ago. And what we really need to do is, in fact, we need to get samples back would really help us understand this, uh, answer that question. Tell us a little bit about the teams that work on the study of Mars. It seems like it's an international community of people with a lot of different areas of expertise, and it must be kind of an awesome community. It's it's an incredible community, really. So, I mean, I can't even, I don't even know if I know the exact number right now of people. So, I think our science team alone is like something like 400 plus people. That's not including any of the engineers. There's a lot of engineers, you know, so we're talking like, you know, really thousands of people make this happen. 
every day. And they've, you know, a lot of people have contributed in the past and they don't necessarily work now. So it's really a team effort. And as you said, it's international. So uh, half of our team on the Kim Kim team is actually in France. So lucky us get to, to visit them every so often. But, you know, so this has opened up a whole new world of colleagues for me. I know, you know, these are, these are folks that I may not have met otherwise. And they're just such a great community. And certainly it's been, you know, very personally rewarding to, to get to know some colleagues, you know, French humor. If anyone knows some French people, it's not the same as American humor. Now, now I feel like an expert after, you know, 10 years of it. But, you know, this is, this is something that we do as not just as a nation, but as a world. So we have, I'm trying to remember the number of countries that we actually have working on this rover, but it's a lot. There are a lot of different people. And so every day when we call in to our telecons to plan what our rover is going to do this day, you are having, you have people on almost every continent. And so people are staying up to the middle of the night to talk to us. You know, it's like, it's everywhere. Um, so I feel like you, it really emphasizes to me how science is this human endeavor. It's not just something that some people do. It's something that we all do together. And it's incredible what we can do when we do collaborate like this. Is this a lifelong interest for you? Absolutely. Yes. I've been obsessed with spaceships ever since I was a kid. Um, I guess the first time I thought about it um, was when my parents took me to uh, an outreach event where uh, we were going to look at Halley's Comet. So this was in 1986. I was seven years old. Uh, There was a lecture and then we got to look through a telescope. And I have to admit, I didn't quite remember the lecture. I was seven, you know. But when I looked through that telescope and I saw this comet, I was like, oh my goodness. Like, it just dawned on me right then that the sky is not a dome. The sky is space. And when you look out in that night sky, you're looking out into this vast universe and things are happening there. Things are moving around. What's out there? So I... From that moment on, I wanted to know what was out there. Like that just seemed like the most exciting frontier. And of course, that led to my interest in, you know, science fiction and spaceships. And then when I was a little bit older, you know, the Pathfinder mission in the 90s, that was right around when I was graduating from high school, I saw these images that came back and it looked like Earth, right? It looked so familiar. And I just decided, I was like, I have to work on a space mission. Now, I had no idea how to do that, what that meant. I had no path forward. I was like, I'm going to do this. And so I feel really lucky and still really excited that I made that happen. Again, I had no idea how it was going to happen, but I knew that that was something that I had to do with my life. One of the things that you've done, which seems to me almost as hard as going to Mars, which is is that you've gone to Antarctica. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it's not as hard as going to Mars because the travel there and so on, many things. Breathe a little more easily. (laughs) Yeah, breathing is is good. You know, gravity is what you know. Uh, At the same time, it's really, really, really cold and windy. And there's, I mean, where you go in the interior of Antarctica, there's virtually no life except for you and your colleagues. What do you do there and how does it relate to Mars? So I uh, was in Antarctica as part of the Antarctic Search for Meteorites Project, or ANSMET. And so this project, which is funded by NASA, uh, sends a team out to Antarctica every year to find and recover meteorite specimens. And so you might wonder, why do we go to Antarctica to even do that, right? Well, that's just because Antarctica is a glaciated continent. So, uh, so meteorites are falling in all over you know, the Earth, same rate. But most of the Earth is an ocean. Antarctica is this beautiful white sheet. So you can easily see rocks. You can find rocks. Exactly. It's very easy to see rocks there. (laughs) But it's also because they get trapped in these glaciers and they get moved. 
and then concentrated in these areas where the ice slows down or stops and then gets scoured by the wind. So you can actually just in these areas of scour, you can just walk around and just there's a meteorite, there's a meteorite, there's a meteorite. There was one day where we found 92 meteorites in one day. That was an exhausting day, but amazing, right? Because there's 92 meteorites that's just within view. And you know they're meteorites and not Antarctic rocks. That's right. It's really, well, you know, it's a, you gotta, you gotta learn the difference between a meteorite and a meteor wrong. There are a lot of meteor wrongs <laughs> in Antarctica. I found many of them personally, but you develop an intuition. There are certain things you can look for. And of course, many of the more seasoned veterans on this team um, have seen hundreds thousands of meteorites you know they've seen so many meteorites that they can really uh, identify them much more easily so i learned slowly how to identify a meteorite and how to differentiate that from a terrestrial rock in the course of uh, the five weeks i spent out there um, but it is just like being on mars right it's what I, I mean there is nothing alive out there there are no plants absolutely no plants all the mountains are just bare craggy rocks it's just beautiful, incredibly beautiful, but very stark, you know? No birds, probably. No birds, nothing. So we were 400 miles inland. Oh, my God. And we were on the trans Antarctic Mountains. So nothing lives there. There's just nothing, nothing for life to subsist. Um, all life in Antarctica is typically found on the margins, right? So you're in the ocean. And they can be on the land, you know, occasionally. But they, they, they make a living on the ocean. They don't actually make their living on the land. And so... Uh, even the Antarctic soils are very low in microbial content. It's not that it's zero, but it is essentially zero in some of these places. And many of the places you can't see soil because you're just standing on, you know, a mile of ice. So, you know, there might be life down there, but I wouldn't know. So the relationship to Mars? So one of the reasons that I really wanted to do ANSMED is because the meteorites that they recover, those are the only samples of Mars or other planets, really any other bodies that we have a lot of times. We've only done sample return from three bodies in the solar system ever, right? So we have the moon, right? That's the big one. We sampled a comet. And we also, you know, I think we, we sampled, we sampled the sun. <laughs> but that's about, that's it, right? And asteroids. You know, and an asteroid, that's right. Yeah, so I guess it's the, the comet Vilt 2 and the asteroid Vertanen. I think it's from, uh, with the Itakawa mission. And then the moon. And then the moon because we went there. And yeah, very conveniently went there, grabbed some rocks, came back. Um, so the, And that's probably the bulk of the extraterrestrial sampling that we've done. Yeah. So we've never done sample return from Mars. So all the meteorites um, that we find from Mars are the only samples that we have. And so we have no guarantee that we'll find those meteorites. But this project in Antarctica has found, I think it's something like half of the known Martian meteorites were found in this project. That's incredible. And so, you know, I don't... My team did not end up finding a Martian meteorite. As far as we know, we're still, they're still going through, you know, all the, all the data. But still, like, it's just a matter of time before we find another one. And so when we have a rock in our hand that we can do analyses on in our laboratories and then do repeat analyses on, you know, we can answer questions so much more completely than we can, you know, with our rovers, which are amazing. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, I wrote a whole paper on one rock that we only spent a few days at. And, you know, people ask me well did you learn this 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 I'm like you know I, we had to leave we had to leave that rock behind and we're never going to see it again you know it's also only the size of a penny I don't think I could find it even if I went to you know if I went to Mars myself to look for it it's this like little tiny rock and it had so much that we learned so much from it but yet we can't do more experiments we have all the data we'll ever have and that's not true for meteorites we can actually do repeat experiments so really these samples are ground truthing the the information we can get from these remote sensing missions what's next for you 
Well, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm going to continue my work uh, on the Curiosity mission. Um, we're still going strong, which is awesome. Um, we're also working on building our instrument for the next rover, which is the Mars 2020 rover. We're building an instrument called SuperCam, which is going to be similar to but enhanced um, from our, our ChemCam instrument. And so that's we're kind of ramping up to that. That's not going to launch until 2020. So, um, you know, we're still in the stages of building it. Um, eventually, we're going to do calibrations in the laboratory and start doing more science with that. Um, and then eventually, hopefully, it'll be on Mars and we'll start taking new data and a new landing site. And I'm also, you know, I have a few other research projects that are all related to my work that I'm doing with Mars data. But trying to understand, I'm trying to understand, you know, what are the kind of signatures of life that we could tease out from rover data alone, right? So just using our limited set of instruments, how could we positively identify, you know, biosignatures? Because that's the question we're trying to answer in 2020. So if we're going to be able to do that on Mars, we have to be able to do that on Earth, right? Because I can test that. I know what I'm putting in my instrument here on Earth, right? So if I can identify those things on Earth, then hopefully we could identify them on Mars in the future. Nina Lanza is a staff scientist in the Space and Remote Sensing Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. She's a member of the ChemCam instrument team for the Curiosity Mars rover. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to chat with you again. You've been listening to the inaugural episode of the new Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show, you can email me at mc at radiocafe.media. And please do check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. And I want to thank Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more about them at steadynetworks.com. I can tell you firsthand that those guys do wonderful work, and they've been really supportive of public media over many years. So thanks, guys. And thank you all for listening, and see you next time.